Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. When University of Waterloo professor David Hammond first shared preliminary results of his teen vaping and smoking study with Health Canada and the media in late 2018, he did so with the hope that his findings were just a blip, a sentiment he expressed at the time and then again in June 2019 when the study was finally published in the British, Amer excuse me, in the British Medical Journal. While the results of the survey showed a 74% increase in teen vaping, measured as used once in the past 30 days, from 2017 to 2018, the most explosive finding was in regard to youth smoking. Dr. Hammond's research purported to find a massive year-over-year -year increase of 45% in the prevalence of smoking among youth ages 16 to 19 in Canada. The finding fueled national news coverage, hyping the teen vaping epidemic, and bolstered the claim that vaping is a gateway to smoking. Now, one year later, Dr. Hammond and the British Medical Journal have issued a correction to the controversial study and admit that not only was there no increase in teen smoking, the rate fell by 7%. Joining us today on RegWatch is Dr. Chris Lalonde, professor of psychology and an expert in research methodology at the University of Victoria. Dr. Lalonde, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back again. Well, I wish it was under better circumstances. As you know, RegWatch has been covering the impacts of the controversial study by Dr. David Hammond. And, you know, let's start this first off with you. Explain for our audience what the study was about and why it was so controversial. Well, what the study tried to do was to compare the prevalence of smoking and vaping in Canada, the U.S., and England, and to look for differences in trends in rates over time that may be the result of different regulatory practices. Um, and so they they did that and they reported, you know, a, I think it was a 74% increase in vaping in youth in Canada, increases in England and increases in the US. Um, and that is a trend that we had been seeing for years that youth are vaping. Um, what was really concerning to me and to many other people was he also reported an increase in youth smoking for the first time in decades in Canada, it's been going down, down, down relentlessly. Um, but this study reported an increase, and not just a little increase, or not even a flattening. It went up 45%. That's a huge jump from one year to the next. And while youth smoking has been going down globally for years, and vaping has been going up, the sort of gateway theory narrative has it that okay, all these young people are vaping, but they're going to transition into smoking. And so they've just been waiting and waiting and waiting for this to happen. And it just never happened until this one study. And it happened in a big way, like up by half. Um, so that sort of sent a lot of shockwaves through the tobacco harm community about, is, is this a real finding or is it, as even Dr. Hammond described, a blip? And we should monitor it and keep looking. Um, so I don't know if you want to go in now to the correction. Well, let's just let's maybe just hold that for a second because okay. if that, if the correction just happened in the last week and a half, yeah. correct? So let me let's just yeah. give the news timeline on it, but we'll dive in fully onto the correction in a minute. But they've yeah. come out and they've they've re they've reissued the numbers. Yeah. Do you want me to say what those numbers were? Go right ahead. 
Okay, so uh, a lot of us were concerned about this 45% increase. We just thought that doesn't jive with any other data sets we've seen from anywhere. A few days after the original BMJ paper came out, Stats Canada released a bunch of numbers that showed that, no, in fact, youth smoking rates fell again, as they have year after year after year. Um, and so you have to think, how can you reconcile those two findings? That one is saying it's gone up 45%, the other is saying it's gone down. Um, and so... Just this week, uh, the, the Hammond Group issued um, a statement saying that, that the, they, in fact, when they reweighted the numbers from their survey for Canada and the U.S. and England, um, smoking rates in Canada actually went down by 7%. So now the issue is, well, what should be done about the impact of the original study that claimed a 45% increase? And that impact was huge. And I'm going to uh, throw up here right beside you. This is uh, from Clive Bates, who just put this out. Was this today? Yeah. Was this today. To yeah. yeah, it was today. Yeah. So, I mean, we're really talking about the the harm reduction community here really stepping up and holding Dr. Hammond's feet to the fire. Now, not only for uh, publishing a 45% increase in teen smoking, which defies credibility in my mind, but also to for taking so long uh, to make that correction. Speaking of how long, let's just first go to a bit of a timeline here. I'd like everybody to kind of understand what's happened is after many, many, many years of a lot of hard work by politicians, government, Health Canada, researchers, scientists, activists, and so forth, millions of dollars spent, the Canadian government passed a law making nicotine vaping legal. And this is a very big deal. And that law passed May 23rd, 2018, Canada passed into law the new Tobacco and Vaping Products Act, the TVPA. The act creates a national minimum, age, national minimum age of access for vaping products of 18 years. It also includes significant restrictions on the promotion of vaping products, such as bans on advertising that appeals to youth, which obviously wasn't a full ban, lifestyle advertising, sponsorships and promotions, and giveaways, products, and brand merchandise. And the, also the other big thing, of course, that um, was a result of this was getting a handle on certain flavors. So there was entire categories of flavors that you were not allowed to have legally in Canada anymore. And then when it came to the packaging and marketing of vaping products and specifically e-substances as British Columbia calls it and as e-juice, e-liquid as you know the people in the industry call it, you can't have like unicorns on uh, your bottles and yeah. your packaging. You can't have birthday cake. You can't have any of that stuff. And that's been now for several years. You can't mm -hmm. have that. So the TVPA made vaping legal in Canada. And it's really important to note that. Now that was on May 23rd, 2018. So from there, we just quickly jumped to September. And it was in September, late August, September is when Big Tobacco really released their brands um, out. On, in fact, actually, that's the next slide. So in September, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb announces an epidemic of teen vaping and states that this epidemic poses a clear and present danger to youth. Very strong language. You can't get stronger language. This is the kind of language FDA and CDC use to quarantine cities. Oops. I mean, so we've always had a problem with that. Let's grab the next. And then, as I mentioned, I just don't have that slide. As I mentioned, also in September, that's when Big Tobacco, specifically Juul and Vipe and 
those brands and maybe a few others, but those brands um, saturated the Canadian marketplace, uh, releasing their products, of course, because they could legally sell them, uh, mm -hmm. into thousands and thousands of convenience stores and so forth across the country. And um, some could argue that that played a role. We have Dave Bryans, who's the CEO of the Ontario Convenience Store Association, coming on the show next week. So we're definitely going to be giving him some time to talk about the convenience store issue with all of this. But the matter of fact here is there was a short period of time uh, in a little bit of August and September when uh, Big Tobacco had their products in market. And at that same time is when Dr. Hammond um, had his panel uh, out there. Maybe you could, I'll just hand that to you for a second, explain because I think it's important. Not only are we going to be talking about improper weighting or, or missed weighting uh, when it comes to the stats, but the actual gathering of the stats, we've had some problems with because if you're measuring teen vaping and, and admittedly inside the paper specifically mentions the salt-based, you know, closed system products, if they weren't even in market for half of when the panel was being taken, it, that's a, you know, suspect to me. So hand it to you for that and then we'll jump back in. Yeah, uh, I don't have the details in front of me, so I'm going to have to do this from memory, which is not always the best way to do things. Um, what they were looking at in that study was to try and, and demonstrate that there was some impact of, of these sort of Sultanic and American products on the Canadian market. But the trouble was they, the, the data gathering and the release of the products on the market only got overlapped for about a month. So I think Juul, for example, was released in August, and the data was collected in September. So I just don't understand how you can expect an effect of a regulatory change to show up in three or four weeks. That's not how the real world world works. Um, so I had a lot of problems with that uh, with that particular study. Yeah. So just where, just just how we even got the data. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 All right. So then let's uh, let's jump here into the timeline. So this is going. This is happening in September. Now, by, the, by late October, what we have found out, and we found this out through a December 8th CBC article, was that Dr. Hammond had started sharing selectively uh, the results, the findings of this study with Health Canada and with members of the national media that was then driving, you know, a, a huge hysteria of vaping. If, if, you know, if I can be so bold to get people to remember what the fall of 2018 was like after the FDA announced there was an epidemic of teen vaping. We were saturated in North America with daily coverage in the mainstream media that vaping yep. was harming our teens, was addicting our teens, and that there was an epidemic. And there was a frenzy in terms of something had to get done. And you had Health Canada having to scramble just months after the TVPA went into law, became a law, before the ink was even dry they were having to look at um, what to do to combat this teen epidemic. Yeah, well, the situation is remarkably similar in Canada and the U.S. to that extent because um, Gottlieb came out with this claim about an epidemic saying, we've got this data, it's, it's so worrisome, we're calling it an epidemic. Um, but the data didn't get released for months and months and months and months after that. And when it finally was released, people started reanalyzing it and finding the same sort of things that... Yes, it's going up, but calling it an epidemic when the vast, vast majority of youth don't vape and don't smoke seems kind of more of a political decision than a scientific one. 
Um, so you have data sets that only FDA, CDC have influencing public policy in ways that change the way citizens live their lives, but nobody has seen the data. There's no kind of peer review of this. It hasn't been published. And so we had remarkably the same kind of thing happen in Canada. So uh, Hammond's study showed this worrying increase in youth smoking and another increase in youth vaping. Um, and the data is being shared with Health Canada, with journalists, with who knows who else, but not with scientists who could peer review it or people who could actually look at the data, look at the stats and decide how reliable are these numbers? Should we be using these to influence public policy? Um, and I think finding now that the this vast increase in smoking and even some of the increase in vaping was just a blip, a statistical artifact. Um, makes you wonder how things might have been different in both Canada and the U.S. if people had had access to reliable data and could have an informed, transparent debate about what public policy should be. And that is the case, no doubt, because when we look at the U.S. data, when it finally came out, we had uh, Dr. Ray Nayara, who's yeah, uh, yeah who's the head yeah. of epidemiology, David yeah, yeah, and David Abramson, exactly, a Abrams, and uh, Dr. Nayara was on the show uh, last spring. Uh, once they finally had the data uh, that that was used in the states, and they looked at it, and they went, "There's no teen epidemic here." Yeah. So, yeah. and that's and that's so we're seeing a pattern now where the the re where the government researchers or their research friends, the ones that are friendly to you know, I guess the anti vaping position, but they seem to not be transparent. Uh, the data is is, is questionable is probably the nicest way to put it. Let's take a quick look over here. This is the December 8th story that Kelly Crow did for the CBC. Now, Kelly is, you know, a great reporter, uh, but I don't think she's got the right beat on vaping. And we do know the CBC, you know, the vape fail yeah. series that they did in December yeah. was just disgusting. Uh, you know, there's no yeah. way that that was, pure, you know, proper journalism. And yeah. we know that they know that too, because they slinked off and cut the series short. I'm going to just look a little bit because this is the prime example of of what comes out of as i think you call it chris uh, uh press release science is science that, by press release science yeah. by press release and this is a little deeper because you would think that there would be a strong relationship i think here between the reporter um and um waterloo now new data suggests teen smoking rates in canada are also rising <coughs> and and so any any adult worth their salt during the middle of the epidemic of teen vaping, to have the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation come out and Dr. David Hammond from the University of Waterloo come out uh, with a story that says that their data shows a 45% increase in teen smoking when it's been declining year after year for decades. This, the worrisome here is not the data, it's the researcher and the reporter in my mind. So, you know, we all want these findings not to be true. Yeah. Is what and David? If, what, I mean, if, what does that mean as a researcher? Yeah, I, I know. Um, I think it's it's uh, would be better had he said, "We hope this is a blip, and you know we're off looking through our numbers to double, triple check everything." But if I remember correctly, Brent, I think at the bottom of that story they toss in the Avali business. Oh well, right the, the they do well. that at, on everything, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do that on everything, and you know. Oh, they Why wouldn't it, be able to do a valley here yet, Chris, because this this was the previous fall. Okay, no, it's, yeah, it's the late. It's, sorry, it's the latest one on the BC regs. Right, right. And just yeah. let to point this out here, just just to make sure, like this is at the very start of this piece. So, 
As he tallied his latest data on vaping rates among Canadian teens, University of Waterloo professor David Hammond tried to find reasons not to believe his own research. That's because the results were troubling. According to his numbers, Canadian teenage vaping rates have increased substantially, similar to the dramatic increase in the U.S., where rates shot up by 80% in one year, a trend the FDA called epidemic. We all want these findings not to be true. We've been trying to find ways why this data isn't robust. We have not been able to find any reason, said Hammond, a public health professor. I'm curious why the start of this uh, science-based article has got this uh, weird political science stuff happening here with negated thing. Oh, I don't really want our research to be seeing what it is. All signs are very worrisome. And even more disturbing, Kelly Crow writes, cigarette smoking in teenagers appeared to be rising for the first time in 30 years. Quote, mm -hmm. there are also troubling findings on smoking rates and signs that progress in reducing youth smoking may have stalled, which is a dog whistle for progressives that it's a gateway and, mm -hmm. it, and it, that's a dog whistle. He said, adding that there's a need for more research to confirm his results. And then that's the yeah. out every researcher in this space always does. They say it gives you heart attacks, but we need more research. And then the headlines yeah. are heart attacks. I mean, this, we all want these findings not to be true. I, I just help me here from, from finding my righteous indignation which I know that, <laughs> I mean, am I wrong here? When I read, when I read this the first time, when I, when we've been covering this story for an entire year, every time I read this, cause this is like the fire, you know, this is the gun going off here. I mean, it's disgusting. Well, so let's see, the most charitable reading I could put on that is if you're a health professional um, and rates of some risky behavior among youth are going up instead of down, you would be worried and you'd want it not to be true and stuff. But um, I think it, it should because it's a complete outlier in the whole research literature, that should cause you to redouble your efforts to say what could have possibly gone wrong in this study. I mean, every research study you do, the reason they have P is less than 0.05 means that you know there's a chance one in 20 that what you found is just a fluke. It's a blip, it's an anomaly, it's not, reflective of what's really going on in the population. That's why we do those statistical tests, right? Um, so if you find yourself as a remarkable outlier in the research community, um, I think before you go running off to policymakers and media people, you go back to the lab and you roll up your sleeves and you check the numbers and think, what could possibly have accounted for this really, really anomalous finding? Mm. And, you know, months and months go by before the thing gets published and then months and months go by before they find out, oh, here's why it might have been that way. Exactly. So let's just uh, do the last little bit of our little timeline fun here. Which one am I on? There we go. And so where does this lead? Uh, you know, a fire gets lit um, through the media because it wasn't just the CBC, of course. And we're going to jump right back, actually, to Kelly's uh, December piece for one last time here. But, but right now. In the new year, late January, early February, in terms of having to respond to this vaping epidemic, Health Canada basically 100%, this is the way we read it, basically cracked open the as yet not even year old law <coughs> in place and cracked it open and issued two consultations to the public. Number one, consultation, potential measures to reduce the impact of vaping products advertising on youth 
and non-users of tobacco products because you know they're really they really don't want adults to make a choice to vape if they have never smoked and so that's right there in the consultation that consultation there was between february 2019 and march 22nd when it closed the second consultation which is the granddaddy the big one which we still have not yet had health canada issue the regulations from as a result of this one is consultation on potential regulatory measures to reduce youth act access and appeal of vaping products in canada and that was april 11th 2019 closing at may 25th 2019 and the issue here is that dr hammond's research was distributed to health canada and we know that because that's what he told the cbc here is the december 8th piece again and here you have citing data gathered a year and a half ago she said uh, that's sort of the health minister health canada officials told cbc news in an email that the minister hadn't seen hammond's research when she made those comments on thursday hammond sent his entire paper to health canada at the same time as he submitted it for publication any new and emerging data that suggests an increase in youth vaping or tobacco use would be a concern to the minister. So what we have here is we have basically this research, the findings that are explosive being shared with Health Canada. And I don't necessarily have a problem specifically with that. But when he lit up the media, when he lit up the media, then at that point, then, I mean, he's that 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 is that's in getting involved basically in the regulatory process because the the piece his his study was not shared with anybody else harm reduction advocates politicians from you know the peer opposition reviewers. Peer, peer reviewers peer reviewers what do yeah. you think of that well i i'm reminded of the old british empiricist philosophical tradition where their rallying cry was on no man's word that is you accept no claim to truth or knowledge on any man's word you need reliable, testable proof before you accept it as true. And so I think this is just exactly a, a kind of case of that, that, you know, in science, people do research and somebody's got to check their math, right? And it should be other researchers and journal editors and people who have some expertise in the subject matter and not the media and not politicians and policymakers. I think that's just the wrong approach to using scientific evidence for anything. Um, and so I think that mistake was made in spades in this case. Right. And let there be no mistake that all of the uh, turmoil in the vaping industry uh, that's been going on. So you've got ban you know, draconian bans in Nova Scotia. You know, you've definitely had some strong, uh, you know, action in Ontario, though it's not bad. BC has just released their stuff, uh, their uh, regs in mon on Monday. And so all of the, and Alberta's coming, you know, Quebec is a nightmare. I, there's just no way that this uh, research has not impacted, did not set, or at least continue the fire uh, that was going on with regards to all of these uh, bans. I, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, we won't know what the atmosphere, the regulatory atmosphere would be like had that not happened, right? If it's uh, hypothetical. Right. Um, but I think it's fair comment to say that it had an influence. Well, well, let's, stop. and on that influence, let's still, you know, stick back to 2019. So we uh, were fortunate enough to have Health Canada invite us to Ottawa for an interview with Director General James Van Loon for the, from the Tobacco Control Directorate. So he's the boss uh, when yeah. it comes to uh, tobacco and vaping for Health Canada. So we had a sit-down interview with him, 
And I want to play us uh, a bit of that. And here is a discussion. Just making sure before we start everything here that our audio is good. Yes, it is. So here's a snippet of our discussion with regards to the youth vaping epidemic. Now, this is um, March. March or April? Well, I can tell you. April 16th, 2019 is when the video was released a couple of days after we shot it. I believe you've described it to the industry as an existential crisis or threat. It's certainly a very, very big issue. I actually remember the conversation that, uh, that you're referring to there. It was right after the FDA had called this an ex existential threat. What I was trying to convey to the industry in that conversation, what I think is still true, is that the level of concern here is just as high. We are aware of some evidence that suggests that there is a rapid increase in the rate of youth use of vaping products. And that's something that we find very alarming. So, um, so yes, that is a, a challenge that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, I have to ask you, what is the data that supports that level of alarm in Canada? Mm -hmm. Because even uh, David Hammond mm -hmm. told us that mostly the data that he's got mirrors the U.S., but it's not public yet. And so if the data isn't public yet, how do we know that there is the alarm? Yeah, so, I mean, David has... I'll take a step back on that. Actually, we, we have data going back many, many years on, on rates of vaping in Canada. We have a couple of national level surveys that suggest, or that, that canvas people for how much smoking is going on, how much vaping use. One is the Canadian Tobacco Alcohol Drug Survey. One is the Canadian Student Tobacco Alcohol Drug Survey. In the previous cycles of those, CTADS had showed a fairly consistent level of vaping. Uh, but the Canadian Student Tobacco Alcohol Drug Survey had shown a substantial increase over the previous two years leading up to 2017. And that was about, about 30% a year. So we knew there was an upward trend. We're also carefully watching what's going on in the United States because a lot of the same products are available and you know, the kids all speak the same language. And oftentimes things follow along in Canada from what's happened in the U.S. first. So that's alarming. And then David Hanneman came and showed us his, as yet, as far as I know, unpublished data. Uh, but that showed similar trends in Canadian youth use of vaping products as what had been seen in the U.S. So that was enough for us to feel like there's a substantial cause, and certainly our minister feels there's a substantial cause for concern here, and that's why we've been looking at the additional measures that we can take to try to put additional pressure downwards on youth uptake of vaping. So let's talk about that. What are those measures? I know that right now it's consultation, so what have you asked of industry and what are you looking at? Yeah, we, so first of all, I'll just point out that the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act contains a bunch of prohibitions right there in the act. Which are pretty much negated because each province now is coming up with their own uh, measures and it's a patchwork across the country. I mean, it's a mess, Chris. Yeah, it is. And I think we talked about this once before about how um, provincial health ministers are going to want to lay this at the feet of Ottawa. They're going to say, we don't want a patchwork. We want Ottawa to show strong leadership on this and have national guidelines and uh, national rules. And uh, I don't think they're necessarily wrong about that because the worry is always that uh, municipalities and provinces and territories are going to be more extreme because they don't have the resources to actually do the scientific legwork to see, is this justified? Can there be any unintended consequences of this action that we're proposing to take? Um, so in some ways, I think the call for national leadership isn't 
necessarily misplaced. Um, now, we can and, talk and Chris, about what in detail different. Yeah. So just one second. We were just having a bit of a problem with your audio. I just wanted to yeah. make sure. I, I could hear that too. Okay. Well, before we get too far off, uh, in, in my 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 fault for not directly addressing what Director Van Loon had said there, let's just do that first. He said that Dr. David Hammond's research that he shared with Health Canada, that even in April of 2019 had yet to be published, and yep. the Director uh, General said that it gave substantial concern to take action. Yeah, for cause the, for concern. Yeah, cause for concern. With Health Canada and the Minister of Health is what he's saying. So, I mean, that's that right there. You can't have anything clearer than to say that this research that has now been corrected, um, mm -hmm. it was you know played a big role. Yeah, I, as I said, I have no doubt that it had an impact. How big an impact, we'll never know. We don't know what other material they were reviewing behind closed doors. Um, but we do now know that the information they had in hand was not correct. Had it been correct, I'm sure they would have done things differently. If you could say with a clear conscience, youth smoking is still going down, still going down every year, going down. The dreaded gateway has not reared its head yet. Um, I think maybe the, the they would have made different decisions. Who knows? Yeah, because, you know, in the end, right, I, I've always felt um, that, you know, Health Canada has to defend its decision. Uh, you know, it put us its stamp of approval on vaping. I mean, if we are a co country based on science and health, yeah. if Health Canada is based on science and, and Director Van Loon, you know, has made it clear they've got their own scientists that looked at this too. So, and we did see uh, earlier, late last year, some of the news stories starting to come out kind of saying Health Canada got it wrong. And, and yeah. you could see that pushing around, you know, the anti-vaping folks are really trying to bully Health Canada into uh, taking some drastic measures with regard to vaping. What do you think of the Canadian Cancer Society? Because they, they've been, you know, putting that 45% yeah. number out there and obviously not been friends of vaping at all. Um, what role do they play? Uh, I mean, I can't speak for what motivates the Canadian Cancer Society, except to say that, look, their mission is supposed to be to reduce the harms and deaths from smoking. And so you would think that would be their hyper focus would be on smoking, smoking, smoking. Um, but for the past few years, they seem to have been distracted by vaping in ways that are perplexing to me. So people keep talking about, uh, you know, youth harms, but it always reduces to either it's a gateway to tobacco, so therefore something must be done, uh, or it's a gateway to a lifetime of addiction to nicotine. Um, so to sort of justify your fundraising activities, your advocacy, your policy making, your lobbying, you need to show that the gate, there is some evidence for the gateway effect, and there isn't. Um, and you need to show that somehow using nicotine in and of itself is a dangerous, bad, addictive thing. Um, and so far, that's come up empty. I mean, we've known for 30 years that nicotine patches aren't addicting. Right? People don't start on three milligram patches and then go to six and nine and and then wear them around their belly like a belt to get more nicotine. It just it just doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, if you think of nicotine more like caffeine than smoking, it sort of changes your focus. And so I've never quite understood the Canadian Cancer Society and, and other health related organizations who seem to just have lost sight of the goal. Right? If the goal is to reduce the negative impact of smoking, then that's your goal. 
concentrate on smoking. So you should be very worried about a 45% increase and you should be very uh, happy when you find out, no, in fact, it didn't go up. It went down by 7%. Um, But I haven't heard them shouting that. So I don't know. And we're we're almost there getting to the correction for sure. And thanks for, you know, to our audience for bearing with us is we want to make sure that we give the full kind of timeline here if possible. So June 21st, 2019, now this is already after May 25th, of course. So all the regulatory consultations that Health Canada put out there have now been closed. And yep. and Dr. Hammond's research has yet to be released to the public. So yep. if you're kind of over. Now, RegWatch, uh, for those viewers that um, know, um, somebody who had access to the study they leaked it to us, and out of the public interest, we did publish that study so we could get it out there at least in time while there was still a regulatory process going on. We provided no analysis. We didn't cherry pick. We didn't you know, go at it. We just went, here it is, up on our site, University of Waterloo, sent us a cease and desist letter, and uh, we replied back and didn't hear from them again. So, um, But so here's the timing. So June 21st is when it was published, and then, of course, four days later, is when StatsCan came out with the numbers that you were describing. So let's just, you know, readdress that again, if you don't mind. Um, Chris, if you could. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you could, yeah, there you go. Zoom in just a little bit. Um, Okay, so this is comparing uh, smoking rates from 2017 to 2018. And if you look at the 12 to 17-year-old age group, yeah, that's it. Um, it went from 3.5% down to 3.2. So there's no 45% increase there. The age group's a little bit different, but um, there's no increase. Every single smoking in every single age group went down except 18 to 34, where it stayed exactly the same. So what you don't want is for things to go up. What you do want is for them to go down. Um, you can have your own opinion about how worried you should be about things staying the same, but um, overall, that picture from StatsCan, which was a huge study um, and balanced for demographics in ways that the Hammond BMJ paper wasn't, um, that should be cause for comfort. And then the other set of stats that we had that came out of this, which were uh, current smokers daily. Yeah. And- now, we talked about this before, and I really want to spend just a little bit of time on this. So okay. if you're worried about smoking and injury and death from smoking-related diseases, um, you should be focusing your attention on the people who are frequently smoking and doing so for a very, very long time. So if you look, for example, at 50 to 64-year-olds and you went from 15.8 to 14.8, okay, that's good. It's going down a little bit. But those are the people that are at the highest risk of negative health effects from smoking because they've been doing it on time and they're doing it at higher rates than any other age group. If you now look at 12 to 17 year olds, you find smoking is almost all but vanished. And we talked about this E, so it says 1.1 in 2017, 0.9 in 2018, and then there's an E and it says use with caution, which means these numbers are so low that we can't do any kind of reliability estimates about how close those numbers would actually be to the real statistical um, parameters of the whole population. So it's used with caution, I think is a good way to put it, because it's just so whoppingly low that you cannot rely on it. So it's, you know, 0.9. It's not 15.5. Right? So, so we're looking at, uh, we're looking at 
uh, David Hammond's research saying there's a 45% increase year over year. And then StatsCan comes out four days later, releases their data and says that teen smoking amongst daily smokers is so low that it's statistically, you can't record it. It's unreliable. Yeah, exactly. That's, now that's daily. And Hammond was talking about past 30 day, but sure. the, the point is still the same that um, if you Health Canada, the Cancer Society, anybody else is worried about the effects of smoking, look at smoking, follow that, and intervene where you can do the most good. And clearly, when you got 0.9% of teens smoking, look elsewhere, find people more at risk. So I'm assuming then that uh, a researcher of his stature, um, and of course, BMJ being uh, the British Medical Journal, they, they heard about this immediately, and they went, oh my goodness, and they rushed to correct their paper? Well, um, you have to, so put, put yourself in Dr. Hammond's shoes. So you've just published this thing five days later, StatsCan comes out with their numbers um, and you say, well, I better go back and take a look. So you go back and take a look and you find, we didn't have any way of uh, weighting our data for trends when we originally published the data. Now we do, StatsCan has provided that information. We should go back and reanalyze our data and see if this huge increase is still there. So then you have to ask yourself, well, how long would it take you to do that? And if you did it initially and quickly, just to sort of back of a napkin calculation and found, oops, it didn't go up by half, it went down by 7%, then what should you do? Should you keep analyzing, write up a manuscript, publish it, or should you alert BMJ and Health Canada say, Okay, remember when I told you that smoking had gone up by 45%? Well, I was wrong about that. It actually went down. Uh, so how long it should take you to do all that work, I leave to you and your audience and, and other people. Um, I don't think there was any malicious intent on their part. I think it, it wasn't even an error or a mistake. Um, they just didn't have the, the information that they needed when they published the paper to properly weight the data and the trends for time. Um, but they got that pretty quickly after, and uh, you know, I'll let other people be the judge of whether it took them too long to publish it. And then we can talk about how um, little fanfare there has been about this correction, or even about how hard it is to find it. Sure, and um, let's do that. And let's do that before sure. we do that, Chris. Let's just take a moment, though, because, um, and I'm not certain if you just referenced that or not, but there was an article. Uh, some research that was just recently published this spring, I think it was the JAMA article, correct? That was uh, using yeah. was using the new data. So so before even before the correction was made on you know this explosive controversial study, um, they've already gone out and used their new the new weighting system uh, in other articles, correct? Uh, presumably, the um, JAMA Pediatrics article by the Hammond Group uh, just came out and. Um, is it this so one? So it's, yeah, July 2020, and I believe that was submitted for publication in, or accepted for publication in February, if I'm, if I'm reading it right. Uh, no, not that one. No, Sorry. not this one. Okay. No. Well, uh, while you talk about it, I'll find it. Okay. Um, but it's that really short one. It's, you know, maybe three pages long. Um, again, comparing Canada, the U.S., and uh, England. Um I'm trying to find it on my computer and not having much luck. But um, it's very clear that the smoking rates that are reported for Canada in that paper um, were 
clearly they had to have been using the weights provided by um, Stats Canada because the numbers show, once again, smoking going down. Uh, which one? This was May 4th. Okay, I'm going to have to pull it up on my computer. Is this it right here? Yeah, you? that's it. That's it. So scroll now to the next page and maybe even the next page. So you see some graphs. Keep going. Okay, so if you can, if you could zoom in on graph B, the one in the upper right-hand corner. Okay, so there's the data for Canada and then England and then the U.S. And the sort of dark blue at the bottom, 6.7 in 2017, is smoking only in Canada. And then 4% are smoking and vaping. So that's 10.7%. That matches the number um, that was reported in the earlier paper. For 2018, you've got, what is that, 9.9%. And for 2019, you've got 8, 9 point, what that is, 2%. Um, so clearly, that's not the 15.5% that they had reported months earlier. So clearly, they've got the corrected data there. And what it shows, again, for Canada and the US, and even to some extent, the UK, that smoking rates are going down. Um, so... Yeah, so by, I mean, it was accepted in February, who knows when it was submitted, but clearly they had access to that data um, ahead of the correction that they just published this week. So let's take a look at that now. So I've got um, right here, let's make sure. So here's the B, here's BMJ. So they've issued this correction. And so those, I, maybe describe for us how this correction comes about with BMJ. Did, you know, Dr. Hammond just decide to do it? Was there pressure? I, I don't know whether there was any pressure. I think as a scientist, when you say we're publishing data, we don't have any data on which to properly weight the variables because that data doesn't exist. So it's not an error or a mistake that they didn't do it. It just wasn't there. But if very quickly after that, those weighting variables become available, you should say, well, now I'm going to go back and I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, so he did and eventually contacted BMJ and said, uh, actually, when we redo this data, okay, so there's the original data. The paper itself has not changed since it was originally published. And it's still available, correct? It's still available. Um, and then there's that pink sort of rectangle there that says there's a correction. And if you go ahead and click on that. Okay, let's give everybody just a second here to absorb this site. So if you're looking for the correction, so if you're finding, you know, doing search and research and you end up at the prevalence of vaping and smoking among adolescents in Canada, England, and the United States, uh, repeat national cross-sectional surveys, which was published in June, on June 20th, 2019. Here yep. we are in July yep. 10th, 2020, and you get a box that says, this article has a correction, please see. Continue, please, Chris. Click this. Okay, so click that, and you'll think, oh boy, here we go and you get nothing. I mean, you can look at that and you can say, if you abstract, it'll just reload the page. Okay, Don't let's do that. Well, let's do that because I did that about three or four times going, yeah, well, where is this that. correction? Okay, so now if you had the wherewithal to persist this far, if you look on the right-hand side, that menu, you'll see data supplement. Now, if you were looking for a correction, I'm not sure you'd look there, but go ahead and click that. <laughs> well, I am clicking it. I think, okay, hold on. There we go. Oh, there we go. Okay. okay, now scroll up. You got to scroll yeah, up. Yeah, because it jumps down, right? You can't, don't even right. see the... 
right, okay. sends you to related articles. So now click on data supplement, the little one under where it says data supplement. Yeah. Da- oh, sorry. You got to click data supplement twice. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. I'm just absorbing the transparency here. Yeah. And I'm just basking in it. Okay. Okay. So this finally, at last, is the update. Um, and it's very short on uh, the specifics of how the weighting was applied and things like that. But, uh, you know, that's fine. Um, but as you can see, if you scroll down to the, what's the, yeah, that bottom paragraph there. Whoa, whoa, stop. Okay, so the effect of the, yeah, so that paragraph. Okay, so originally it was from, smoking went from 10.7 to 15.5, a statistically significant increase. Revised after re-weighting to 10.7% to 10.0%, no significant change. U.S. data, the same thing, no significant change. Um, so, and that's it. And that's, okay, now, that's everything it, in the correction. And now, if you were to go back, whirl your way back to the original paper, you'll see that it is unchanged. It still says in the conclusions um, Between 2017 and 2018, among 16 to 19-year-olds, the prevalence of vaping increased in Canada and the U.S., as did smoking in Canada. Hmm. So the text of that paper is identical to what it was the day it was published. Um, And I'm hopeful that that will change and change quickly. Um, And that's, I think, on the editors at BMJ to get on the case, correct that text. Some people are saying they should retract and resubmit. Um, I leave that to the editors to decide. But something needs to be done about the fact that you have a screaming conclusion that smoking is statistically significantly increasing in Canada. And then buried, buried way deep down, you find, oops, no, never mind, it actually went down. And it is buried, isn't it? I mean, is that fair to say? Because uh, yeah, we just... I mean, it, yeah, it is buried at the moment. And, okay, it's all very recent in the last few days. Let's give them a chance to do a more proper job of that. And so that's why I think you're right to title this a pivotal moment. So it's a pivotal moment for the editors at BMJ to say, okay, what do we do now, right? We shouldn't have this uh, hidden way down deep. We shouldn't have the conclusions, the erroneous conclusions that are still being pointed to by uh, researchers and policymakers who are opposed to tobacco harm reduction. We should fix that, okay? in terms of Dr. Hammond's research team, they went very quickly to Health Canada and the media when they thought this was true. I want to see how very quickly they go to the media and Health Canada now knowing that it's not true. right? And then the third group, I think, are policymakers and politicians that if you're basing everything you're doing at Health Canada and in British Columbia and Alberta and Nova Scotia and Ontario on this assumption that smoking is going up or that the gateway effect is true, then are you going to take a step back and say, wait a minute, did we go too far? Did we get caught up in the moral panic about a non-existent epidemic and non-existent increases in smoking rates and actually create policy that will work against what our stated objectives are? So we'll see. It's a pivotal moment. I agree. I mean, so is it fair to... Is it fair to call for the retraction of this paper? Well, some people online are. I mean, you go online, you find the most extreme opinions you could believe. But uh, I'm not sure. Um, That's why I think it's a matter for BMJ and perhaps uh, Hammond and his co-authors to seriously consider. So what you have to think about is, 
is that existing paper and the really buried correction going to do harm if left unchecked, if, if left unchanged? And in my opinion, it, it is and it will. People are still quoting that. They're quoting it this week. Um, so I think they should I think they should change it. And I think they should do that with in all haste. Um, but again, I'll leave to the decision uh, to the editors and the researchers about whether they should actually retract it and resubmit it or just plaster correction, correction, correction all over the place, remove the conclusions that are no longer supported by the data. Um, I mean, I think you and I with a word processor could do that in about an hour. So let's see. Yes, let's see here. I'm just, uh, I'm just going to put this on the wide shot here for a second as I... Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to get my head around this a little bit because it's, it just seems to be so we're going to go to that table. I want to make sure that we find uh, the uh, the table uh, with the yellow highlights and stuff like that, just to give you an opportunity to speak to that. Or have you do you think you've already gotten through? Everything? Uh, no, I think and, and I think especially for the people I'm I'm staring at it. So this is now. In, oh, I don't have it yet. I don't have it yet. So I'm almost okay. there. I'm almost there. We're going to we're going but right I'll, there. Okay, but, I'll just I'll just speak about where that comes from. But one second, Chris. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got something teed up that walks us into that, right? So okay, good. Because it's good. hard to keep all these assets. This is a big story. There's lots of stuff <laughs> going on here over the last year. So I just wanted to show just just for right now. If you go up to uh, Dr. David Hammond's website, so his website where his research is and all the great stuff that he does, you know, even here on his website, you know, is still the old article. And I just want to make sure everyone see. I mean, he's got the ability to on his own website, like I do, I can put notes up, I can do lots of things on my website to put a notice, but yet on his website, he has left the paper completely uh, without correction, and he's got no notice of correction with the paper, and you can see it right here, you can download it, and here are the offending, some part of the offending details. So I just wanted to make sure that I put that out, because I would think that, you know, I know that at RegWatch, we would pull something down, or put a notice on it, so why he's not done that on his own website, to me, is, is suspect. I mean, I think for copyright reasons, he probably cannot change the published version in BMJ, but he certainly could put up a big screaming addendum, correction, erratum, um, and, you know, and should. It doesn't need to be incorporated yet into the published manuscript in a way no. that it should eventually. I agree. So I've got then what you were speaking of, which was uh, yeah. Yeah, this one. So why don't you go ahead and... Okay, so this one comes from a kind of technical report that's available only, as far as I can tell, on Dr. Hammond's uh, website. And it uh, sort of explains, again, it needs more detail, uh, the difference that happens when you apply the weighting versus when you don't. So to his or their credit, uh, the yellow highlighting is the data points before and after being reweighted. Okay, And so I like the fact that they put yellow highlighting around there. Now, if you look at the uh, numbers in the yellow highlighting, I'm trying to, I don't think there's a single one that went up as a result of reweighting. I'm seeing a couple that are the same, but for both vaping and smoking, when you apply those new weights, uh, you find that the prevalence goes down. Right? And in some cases it goes down a lot. Um, so that's the effect that that had. Now, I challenge your viewers to go and try and find that technical report 
dig through it, find that table, and take a look and try and make sense of, of the numbers that you're finding. So we're on his um, website right now. Where would right. we go to look for it? If you look under publications, now again, I'm not saying he's trying to hide it, but it, this whole thing is not meant for a lay audience. Um, uh, there's a something wave one report. So would be down. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and then 2019. So if it would have no, so the technical report would have to be here in his 2020, right? It's there, Brent. It's there somewhere because you and I both downloaded it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I can I can get to it. I I mean, we've got that. You know, our great uh, producer uh, Cindy Schmidt has pulled that out uh yeah. for us but uh and then, well it's, there's there's so much it's already even fine here but look the point being though is that right on his website if you go to it um you can't find it very easy and knowing exactly what's happened with the bmj um you know circle it was like a real circling process with bmj it just comes to the point where it's just you know it's impossible to find this stuff with any ease i mean could you imagine that any reporter in Canada would be chase, trying to chase down this stuff to do a story. I mean, you know, the university does a great job um, pushing the press release when it's, you know, an increase in teen vaping and an increase in teen smoking in Canada, knowing that it's going to get massive amount of attention across the country and know that it's going to impact, you know, regulations and so forth. But yet, you know, when, you know, key aspects of it fall apart, it's just crickets. Yeah. And uh, like I say, it's a pivotal moment. Will the university release a press release? Let's see. If they did, or if BMJ highlighted the difference between what we know now and what we thought we knew then, um, will the media pick up on it? Um, I don't want to prejudge anybody's reaction to this, which is a big event. Um, I want to wait and see if people do what is really the right thing here. I mean, isn't it, isn't it strange though, that, you know, it is, it is the 13th or 23rd, sorry, so that's 13 days. So, you know, there is something off that, you know, people like me and you and others have to be calling for a press release to come out from University of Waterloo in a strong way. I mean, it's 13 days. Yeah. I mean, when, 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 when research is released by University of Waterloo and many other universities that are attacking vaping, they seem coordinated with national media. It's not it, because the level of stories that come out by the national media that day, the report comes out, they were, it was not an editor in the morning assigning, you know, Kelly Crow or something to go and do that story that day. Oh, it just came across the wires. The university of Waterloo has just released this new report and they've got like a three minute piece with multiple interviews, tons of graphics, you know, and it's really hot and heavy with the sizzle. I mean, that was not, I mean, it just seems way more coordinated. Yeah, well, I think that's not an issue that's uh, confined to vaping. I mean, I think university press release press offices are designed to enhance the reputation of the university, get the stuff out there in the media, get it in the papers, get it on TV, and it the content almost doesn't matter. So there's a little cottage industry out there of people who compare university press releases to the actual published research. And they find all kinds of things in the press release that you just can't find in the published paper. So claims made about this or about that. And that's not just 
com confined to vaping or anti-smoking research. It's all over the place. And that's why I was talking about science by press release that, you know, you get these press offices that punch out these page and a half press releases, send them out to every media outlet around the world and media outlets are inundated with them. And they're going to go with the one that's the most insert your sort of description here, uh, how they choose. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it's it's, it's a it's a problem. It's a yeah. it's a big problem, and I, I I love following this little cottage industry because um, it's just an interesting sort of the sociology of science at work here. You know? Yes, well, I mean, obviously, and you know a little bit about my position. I think what's gone on with vaping has exercised muscles from public health that have you know transferred some power to other things that have been going on on a global scale lately. Right. Um, so does this, uh, does this undermine science at all, you know, in a larger, larger scope or is this small? This is a small thing to vapors. This is huge. Cause yeah, I don't to vapors, it's huge to, va to vapors. It's huge, of course. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure the undermining of science, I think is beyond this single event. I mean, if you just concentrate your attention on anti vaping research, you can find dozens upon dozens of examples of, you've called it suspect science in the past, retracted papers, um, all kinds of things where um, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say something ideological rather than scientific going on here. And, you know, that happens in fields outside of vaping, as you are often want to say. Um, so the worry about undermining science is a big one for lots of reasons, particularly during a pandemic, that um, when people lose trust in health organizations, in government agencies, um, really devastatingly bad things can happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you could go on all day about the pandemic and the mask issue and the testing and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but the real issue is the loss of trust. Okay. And so anything that erodes the trust of the public in science as a sort of reliable knowledge generation tool, something that governments could and should use as the foundation for policy is a step backward. So um, I'm not sure in the grand scheme of things how big this is. Like I say, it'll depend on how people react to this and how quickly they react to it. Um, but it is a concern and it's a wider concern than just this incident. Well, and I, I think that, I think it's important to, to note, I mean, Canada's a small country, right? It's not like we've got a bazillion universities and research centers, we've got very few. And Dr. Hammond, I mean, really is well-respected, extremely well-respected sure. and, sure. and prolific in his work. And I mean, to me, it's extremely disappointing that a mistake like this was made after considering the entire, the totality of what happened here. Because, you know, as a journalist, I come across data or we put, to put data together, we have to, you know, we have to grab numbers from here and there and try to make sense of it. And, you know, we got the calculator out and you're doing stuff. So we have to gut check um, all the time, you know, mm -hmm. what we're putting out on the air. And like sure. I asked you last spring when this all happened, isn't there some kind of moral obligation that a scientist must have when they see, when they come out with a 40, and I use this specifically because we're talking mm -hmm. about 45% increase after decades of it going down any person, you even take a lay person and you put that out to them, they would go, well, that number can't be right. Yeah. So it says to me that the people that were doing that research said, well, this number can't be right. And then 
they did whatever they did with their machines and their statistical stuff, and they put it out there, knowing that it was an explosive number. Yeah, I can't disagree with you there. I mean, the defense has always been, we gathered the data, we analyzed the data, this is what the data said, uh, and so we're putting it out there. But normally the putting it out there part goes through a filter of peer review, right? Um, this didn't. It went out there to policymakers, it went out there to the media without that filter. And I think that was a huge mistake. Um, the other thing that I want to point back to, I don't know if you can go back to that pediatrics paper, the graph that had um, Canada, US and England and the smoking yes, rates I that I was pointing out. If you can go back to that B graph, um, one of the things that researchers who are not very fond of vaping keep harping on is that we should be following the English model. That is, they outlawed uh, nicotine levels above 20%. They have stricter advertising regulations. And look, they have lower teen vaping rate. We should all be following England on this. Um, the, <laughs> the strange thing is, if you actually look at the data, um, you'll see that, yeah, sure, kids in England aren't vaping at the rates they are in the U.S. and in Canada. Why? Because they're all still smoking cigarettes. That's why. Right, right. I'm trying to get there fast, but it's not happening. I think you're probably okay. blowing past me here on it. So just keep going. Um, so I'm trying to get it up on my own computer just so I don't get the numbers wrong here. Oh, um, that's a hit right there. So if you just could find that column, and it, and it yeah. almost doesn't matter. We're almost there. But if here. you add up, okay, if you add up in each country in each year, how many are smoking only? How many are vaping and smoking? There it is, B, if you can get a little bit closer. Okay, so look look just at Canada, and you can see over time those dark blue and sort of brown bars are going down, as you would hope. Smoking is slowly but surely disappearing. Picture in the U.S. is a little bit um, uneven, but in gen trending in the right direction. And smoking is going down. Uh, in fact, smoking only in 2019 is the lowest in any of the three countries. But strangely, if you look at England, which is held out to be this grand model, um, yeah, sure, vaping rates are way lower in England than they are, but smoking rates are way higher. Okay. Oh, you just cut out. You you, all, you always cut out in the okay. in your big punches there. So <laughs> yeah, well, when I so, fire up my righteous indignation. That's right. So, that's right. Yeah. So, so state, state that the, again. State that again. Okay. So if you if you look at the dark blue plus the brown in Canada, rates are going down. If you look over to the U.S., dark blue plus the brown, a little bit uneven, but the trend is in the right direction. If you look at the U.K. and you say, wait a minute, they've got like uh, way, way higher smoking rates among youth and way lower vaping rates. So the so blue, dark blue should, here is smoking. Yeah, that's right. So smoking in 2019 in England is more than twice what it is in Canada um, and more than that than the U.S. So you compare the U.S. 2.8% versus 8.4% of smoking only and 3.8 in Canada, and you say, wait, you know, should we take some comfort that, well, we have, I don't know, you add the light blue and the brown, the people who are vaping and smoking in Canada together, you get 17.8%. But boy, wouldn't we be so much better off if we were in England, where only 6.1% of them vape, and another 6.5% of them vape and smoke. Wouldn't that be better? I don't think so. This is a very, you know, there's people right now in our audience in the vaping uh, advocacy space that are understanding this for the first time and they're going yikes so the whole message you're saying here is that 
we point to the UK and we say they've done such a great job uh, with regards to uh, keeping no epidemic of teen vaping, but yet their smoking amongst teens blows everybody else out of the water. That's right. And eyes on the prize, people. Concentrate on the smokers, not the vapors, not the young people. So that then undermines, in some extent, all of the arguments that says, hey, the way to combat teen vaping is to follow the UK, but, but they've got huge teen smoking. Yeah, that's okay. Well, that's, I think that right there is something that um, is going to cause <laughs> some problems for, for us. We're going to have to cover that. Uh, there's no doubt. I want to make sure, though, too, I want to be uh, fair to Dr. Hammond, because even though we could not find the technical report correcting uh, this stuff while on the air, the two of us looking from his site, we couldn't. I just had my producer grab the PDF, which we got, you know, earlier today, and I've got it here to show. But I don't, we can't, we don't have a link right now. It was just to go find it. So, but there is a technical report that we did find up on the site. It was like, we'll make sure that we uh, curate this to RegWatch. Mm -hmm. Cindy, and make Mm -hmm. sure once we're off the air, if you could do that. Um, so yeah, so, you know, he's now, got something here. I, yeah, we had, we had lots of trouble finding that, but it's there and to his and their credit, they put it there and they were the ones who sent that correction such as it was to BMJ. So it's not like they're trying to hide from this. Um, the information is out there. Um, at the moment, it's not very hard to find at the moment. It's not, not very, very easy to find. Right. Um, but it's there and, and it was Hammond and his group that put it there. So um, the conspiracy people, um, I don't have a lot of truck with it at this moment on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, if you dig in, you can find the reweighting parts, but it's not, it, it's not a, a document for the lay public. Yeah, there, it starts there. Um, and so they talk a little bit about the weighting and they have some references and stuff. But uh, I mean, for me as a researcher, I'd want more information than that. But to their credit, they put it there. They highlighted the differences in yellow. Um, and so that's, as I said, to their credit. So, yeah, it's just bloody hard to find. So, yeah. And I think that's the kind of the point here. Overall, we can, I think we can all agree that if mistakes like this are made and they aren't made with a malicious intent... I mean, there is, a, there is the most famous researcher in the world in this topic out of uh, California, who I would say his intentions are malicious, but I wouldn't apply that to Dr. Hammond at all. No, and, and I think, again, I think we should probably stop referring to it as a mistake or an error if sure. it's really true that at the time of their publication, the data didn't exist. They came into existence afterwards. So, and then given that they did what they should, they did the right thing, uh, maybe not quickly enough, maybe not loudly enough, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't want it to, the word error or mistake to linger because it implies culpability that really didn't exist at the time they published the original findings. That's fair. I think the, yeah. er, the error for me is, is, is seeing what any normal human being would see would be a bad number yeah. and then going, yeah. well, you know, just it, is, put what it, it, is. it yeah. is what it is. Right. So that, that's the issue because, you know, that says to me, then it's a, it's a huge example of, of me going, well, where else in what other science, climate change, COVID, whatever, is there science going on where scientists are seeing numbers that are obviously don't make sense as human beings based on reality and, you know, an experience and then still pushing it out there because science says you have to put it out there because that's the numbers our machines gave us. And if that truly is the case, if that is, I think that's even worse than a, well, than an I intentional mean, error. Yeah. 
Sure. That's a problem that lies at the heart of science, Brent. So imagine you come up with a wonderfully clever and elegant experiment and you run the experiment and it doesn't support your hypothesis. Well, you have two choices at that point. You can say my hypothesis was wrong and go back to the drawing board, or I must have made a mistake in the way that I conducted the experiment. My glorious hypothesis is still true. Just botched the methodology of showing its beauty. And in, in principle, there's no way to choose, uh, given the data in hand, which of those is true. Okay, so that runs through all science. And so you try to protect against that by having statistical testing for significance and peer review and all of that stuff. But the real proof in the pudding comes in replication where, you know, if this particular study were true and, and smoking rates in Canada uniquely were going up, somebody else runs the same kind of survey with a different group of people and finds the same thing, then you can take some um, comfort in the reliability of your results because they replicate Right. The trouble in science, particularly social science, is we just don't bother replicating. There's no money in that. There's no fame and glory in that. Right. And it's a, a big problem. So then you can let something go um, because you know that others are not following behind you to replicate your research. Well, you hope that others, well, see, you're supposed to do your due diligence to, to be sure, to be convinced of, by yourself as the researcher and by peer reviewers and other people that the eventual publication, that this is true, that if somebody else went out and replicated this, they'd find the same thing, okay? Um, the cause for pause that we keep talking about is, if you find something that's so at odds with everything else in the literature, not just in Canada, but around the world, um, then what ought you to do at that moment? So that you got to leave that to the conscience of researchers. Yes, you do. All right, so we're making great headway here, uh, Chris. I've got Two main questions I think that's left, you know, for us to kind of deal with. Now, one I have not uh, shared with you in our pre-interview call because it's a bit of a it's a bit of a hefty one and it deserves some surprise. <laughs> All right. Um, so, OK. Let's acquiesce the point that there is an epidemic of teen vaping in Canada. And the term epidemic is what it is. It means it's like spreading like wildfire. I mean, here we are. We know what epidemics are. They're contagious. Kids are like getting close to other kids. And then all of a sudden, boom, a jewel's popping up into their pocket. And they're all of a sudden sucking on it, right? I mean, that's what an epidemic is, right? It's infectious. It's contagious. It, it goes through a population like wildfire and so forth. I mean, that's what epidemic is. And epidemic is the term that public health has applied to this social behavior. Fair enough. I mean, I think I, I think the, the tone of my voice says enough about what I think of that. But let's go and let's take the real epidemic that we're faced with right now, and that's COVID. And what? And I'm not going to make a comment on the lockdown. I'm just going to point out every single teenage kid was locked down in Canada for months. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't that squash out the epidemic of teen vaping? Wouldn't <laughs> shouldn't there be stories uh, on CBC? Why is, did Kelly Crow go out there and try to find parents who have got kids that were so jittery and and, you know, and because remember, the parents and everybody have been telling even at the White House have said that that teen vaping has made my children unrecognizable. They're not running. They're not swimming. They're not doing their work. They're changed the way that they are as human beings. So we have thousands and thousands of kids addicted to nicotine and we just locked them up. So how come there was no stories about all of the ravages that nicotine was doing and as these kids were going through vaping withdrawal. Yeah. Not a single vaping withdrawal story in Canada. Sure. 
Uh, well, that's a really interesting point that you bring up, and I'm sort of glad you sprung that on me. But um, part of the argument about the whole vaping epidemic is that how to tell if your child is vaping. You'll find mood changes, irritability, blah, 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 not doing well in school, all this sort of stuff. So the, the kind of symptoms you were describing were supposed to be caused by vaping. So if it was true that you locked all the kids and they couldn't get their jewels or anything else anymore, then you should see the emergence of happy, studious teenagers. Absolutely. But there's no stories either way. And if the data is to be believed, and I think it is, that particularly for teens, they're getting their vaping supplies and their cigarettes and their alcohol and their marijuana and everything else from social sources, right? Kids aren't marching into the liquor store. They're not going to the corner store for their jewels or their cigarettes. Um, they're not going into legal dispensaries for their marijuana. Um, so why would we expect that a pandemic where the people who were least likely to be locked down are actually teenagers? So there's lots of media stories about how it's hard to keep the kids down on the farm during the pandemic um, because they just have to see their friends. It's okay, mom, we're only going to be playing video games with eight other kids in an enclosed room in a basement that has no ventilation. Right? right for hours upon hours um so and the other thing is of course all parents through all generations are astonished by what happens to their kids when they become teenagers mm -hmm. they just don't recognize this kid anymore. like it's a surprise yeah no i, I didn't want to cut you off because you're, you're on a good track there um let me just say that um let me just say that um I would think that there's so many activists out there that are anti-vaping, so many teachers, so many social justice warriors and so forth, that they would have gravitated towards an opportunity to discuss about the ravages uh, uh, that are going on for their kid who's going through the vaping withdrawal, you know, the nicotine yeah. withdrawal. And so it's just astonishing to me that we're going to come out of this lockdown and are we just expected to pick up the narrative of teen vaping epidemic in Canada like nothing happened? Like there was no four or five months there where parents had locked down control of their kids. This is really puzzling to me. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it would only be a story if you could show that there was a lack of access during the pandemic. And that's what I'm saying I don't think you can do. Because kids, you tell them it's forbidden fruit, they're just even more attracted to it. So, so you're saying that they're still getting their jewels and stuff like that, Absolutely. potentially? I mean, you know, marijuana is illegal in most of the United States. Surprise, surprise, teens are vaping or doing weed. Um, you know, the rates of binge drinking among teenagers who are legally prohibited from purchasing it, if you look at any study in Canada, the U.S., is just really frightening. Sure. So kids will find a way. And that's why the war on drugs and prohibition just do not work for kids, adults, anybody else, ever, for anything. So then in the end, then, uh, the lockdown demonstrates then that it's impossible to keep anything out of the hands of kids. And so thus, is it really worth throwing adults under the bus? And remember, it's a, it is a $1.26 billion a year industry, as per Health Canada. So, I mean, yeah. we're talking about a real industry, real jobs, real people, real lives being held hostage to this teen vaping epidemic narrative that is less and less proving out by the data and mm -hmm. by experience. Like if we, if we say the lockdown didn't make a difference, well then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I think the throwing adults under the bus thing comes back to um, what ought to be your target, right? 
those with the highest and longest exposure to the most dangerous thing, not those with a puff on a vape on a Saturday at a party when they're 15. Right. Right. Uh, there's no reason to imagine that we should essentially ignore that giant group of older adults who've been smoking for a long time in favor of hypothetical harms to teens. That's just illogical in so many um, ways. Um, but the other thing, Brent, just to maybe put your worried mind at ease, the recent regulations in British Columbia, they're forming a youth advisory panel. So they're going to get teenagers who are going to advise the government on ways to prevent teens from vaping and doing stuff. Uh, I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. Terrifies me. It is, I think it's the yeah. worst thing possible to empower uh, teens. Uh, the government is basically saying, we're empowering teens to go bully other teens. Well, that's my, my worry. Now, I'm a huge advocate of uh, giving teens a voice that um, we need to do that more in all kinds of areas of society and listen to the voice of teens, listen to the voice of smokers and vapors and people with HIV AIDS, like nothing about us without us is a, a cry that uh, almost any group could issue. Um, but the way this is described in the things that I've read about the BC legislation is worrisome to me. So I, yes, give kids a voice at the table for decisions, give vapors, give industry, give scientists a voice at the table. That's just the right way to do things, right? Could you be more specific on what worries you? Uh, well, what worries me is precisely what you said, that are, are you creating a bunch of youth that are primed up to stigmatize other youth, whether they're smokers or vapors or, or whatever? Um, I think that's a, a really dangerous prospect here. And I want to read more assurances about how um, the how those kids are recruited, how they're trained, the educational materials that they're supposed to be given is also a worry to me because the, everything that I've ever seen as an educational material for youth is just um, subpar, let's say. Sure. Well, um, I, I, there's always a, a, a smack of ideological uh, kind of conditioning that goes on when you start taking yeah. teenagers and, and you know turning them into a council and then asking them to go out and affect other teens' behavior. So Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a bother to me. Well, Chris, I, I think we've pretty much nailed this. I mean, I hope the best for Dr. Hammond and he continues doing yeah. great research, but he's really got to get on top of this. And it would be nice to see a full court press in the media to come out. Look, you don't need to spend too much time talking about uh, not the error, but the whatever we're going to call that. But you've got to get right. out there and make sure you could get out there and tell a positive story. And that positive Absolutely. story is that teen yeah. smoking in Canada has plummeted and has been plummeting. It is statistically unrecordable on daily, daily. smokers. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like that should be a major story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Want an argument? Pick a different subject. There you, know? you go. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I really appreciate sure. you coming back on the show and just You're hang tight welcome. right there. Thank you very much. Okay. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com and make a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy, just dig into your wallet, find a few dollars and toss them our way. We're coming up to our fifth anniversary covering this issue and we definitely need your help. And while you're online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and please do follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford. Uh -huh.